Hi, I'm Stuart Barry. Thank you for joining us at The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws upon the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders, one topic at a time. Vienna, the former jewel in the crown of the Habsburg Empire, and at the crossroads of Western and Eastern Europe, is well known for its great classical musical offerings, its old masters painting collections, and the fabled Habsburg treasury. However, there was a piece of Vienna which is less well known and visited, and that is its early modernist style architecture and art, which developed during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. To introduce us to this piece of Vienna today, we're joined by Christopher Menz. Christopher is a former director of the Art Gallery of South Australia. Before that, he was a curator specialising in decorative arts and worked at the National Gallery of Australia, Art Gallery of South Australia and National Gallery of Victoria. He has published and lectured extensively on Australian and European decorative arts, notably on the design work of William Morris, and curated numerous exhibitions. Christopher is based in Melbourne, where he's an art consultant and valuer and development consultant for the Australian Book Review. Thank you for joining us, Christopher. I know Vienna is well known for its imperial capital, the magnificent art, the Habsburg treasury, but there's obviously a lot more to the city and particularly of a recent nature. The massive Ringstrasse development and the other developments in art and architecture. Could you let us know a little bit more about this development? The Ringstrasse is really very interesting in Vienna because it is one of the great urban renewal projects of the 19th century anywhere. It essentially, the ring, as it's known, was the um, old uh, ramparts, the old fortification of the city to protect the medieval city as it was perched on the Danube from attack. And it was very much needed. I mean, in the 16th and certainly even in the 17th century, uh, the Viennese were repelling the Turks from the uh, coming in from the east. So it was sort of the last bastion of the protection of Christendom. The area of the ring, of course, uh, the fortifications by the 18th and certainly by the 19th century were completely obsolete. And there'd been a lot of kind of conversation about what to actually do with this space because you had this essentially medieval walled structure, a huge space between there, which are the fortifications and uh, what's known as the moat and then the glacis, the the sort of flat pace that they could see the enemy coming on and fight on, and then the suburbs beyond. And so what happened was that in two things in Vienna, one of the solutions was actually just an imperial decree in 1857 by the Emperor Franz Joseph, who had only just newly come to the throne. And he wanted to, under his personal directive, provide a link between the city and the suburbs, cover up, clean up the moat and the fortifications, pull some of them down, and also provide a suitably imperial setting for the royal family around the Hofburg and for the imperial scale of Vienna. So the what visitors to Vienna see, and they hear about the Ringstrasse and the tram runs along it, and it's got the parliament, it's got the major art museums, it's got the theatres, it's got the opera. And you think it's this sort of street, very grand street, reminds me in some ways of some of our um, national capitals, which have all the cultural buildings in one stretch. But the area is actually some 300 hectares or so, which is the actually the area behind all the grand civic buildings that was developed during this period between 1860 and 1914. 
And so it's this amazing building structure that not only includes the grand civic buildings, but also has um, apartment buildings, shops, um, various other art institutes, those sort of things. It's a bit, the only, I think, I think comparable in Europe is Haussmann's uh, Paris redevelopment in the, around the same period, that is to say the second half of the 19th century. Vienna was really in a period of growth then too. Um, population in 1857 is a bit under half a million. By the beginning of the uh, First War, it's about just under two million or around, a bit over two million around there. So it's a really period of incredible growth. Interesting also in terms of the main civic buildings is, as with ours in Australia, it was very much seen that civic buildings needed to be in an historical style. So the city halls in a Gothic style, the museums were in sort of Renaissance and Baroque styles. And this was considered what was appropriate, but interesting being Vienna. And if you look at the photographs of the period and the structure, they're being built in modern building, they're using modern building techniques, cast iron construction. So they were certainly using all the latest building techniques uh, and some of them even the central heating, but then essentially covered in historical garb. Once you get behind also the area of the actual Ringstrasse itself into the development of some sort of 100 metres or so going away from the ring, you get grid-like series of streets of some very interesting apartment buildings, uh, some of them conservative in there, the historical style of the 19th century, and some of them, some of the modernist ones, which are the ones that tend to interest us more nowadays. So when you're saying about this behind the Ringstrasse, are you talking about heading more into the centre of the city to St Stephen's or away from the centre of the city, or is it oh. both sides of the Ringstrasse? No, no, it's absolutely heading away from the city. The, the city part towards St Stephen's is very much the historical um, old city, and that has very some of some medieval, but also uh, baroque buildings. There are a few buildings that were built within that area in the late 19th, early 20th century, but really most of them is heading away from the um, away from the old city towards the area that was um, actually towards the suburbs. So it was provided this area actually provided a link between a lot of the suburbs, some of, um, some of which were villages which were just absorbed into Vienna in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It's fascinating because most visitors to Vienna probably have confined themselves to that traditional old city centre and they would know it really well. And almost the Ringstrasse almost sounds, is almost like a barrier. Nobody goes across the Ringstrasse to go to the other side. But obviously there's a lot there to see. The buildings themselves on the Ringstrasse, are, they're both famous, but they also get criticised for their historical architecture. What did this mean for the next generation of artists and designers? It's quite interesting. I mean, they were very much criticised in their time as seeing a bit like um, fancy dress. Um, Adolf Loos, the great critic, writes about Potemkin City, so he's seeing it as um, you know a fake kind of uh, theatre set. What happened, in, though, is that the construction begins from the early 1860s. It happened pretty quickly. So the opera's built during the 1860s, the museums and the parliament during the 1870s. So these are very big public state imperial in, uh, building projects. For the next generation of architects, it didn't actually leave that much left in terms of state um, sponsorship. So a lot of the more interesting work is done by is either the city of Vienna, so municipal work, and Otto Wagner works a lot in this area with both re-planning of the Danube Canal, for instance, uh, subway stops, metro stops, and apartment buildings and more small-scale ventures. So the architects of the, I suppose, the late 19th, early 20th century 
tended to be funded by private people. And therefore, that actually gave a little more freedom. So they could actually be a bit more adventurous in what they did because the clients were, they didn't have to go through state committees. As you can imagine, in all the planning procedures in Vienna, as with any big capital, uh, it, they all went through, had to go through a lot of hoops to actually get proposals through. There are a lot of quite strict planning regulations. Some of them actually very good, like there's a lot of green space in this um, urban development of the Ringstrasse. Some of the architects, the main architect who works in Vienna in the last couple of decades of the 19th century is Otto Wagner, who becomes a professor in architecture in Vienna. He very much, he wrote a lot about architecture. He thought that really architecture should be uh, responsible to the modern needs of the time, that we should devise buildings that are appropriate for our modern requirements. And he was very critical of this, what he sort of like, what we would now think of like a Disneyland um, historical buildings along the Ringstrasse that uh, didn't necessarily have any, their ex external form didn't have any sense of relation to what they're actually on about. Is there still a lot of existing buildings or interiors by the architects like Wagner that you can still see today in Vienna? Wagner's particularly fortunate because he built some um, semi-public buildings which have survived. One of his, um, I mean, the, the, the very obvious ones are some of the metro stops in Vienna, which are very lovely. There are several apartment buildings, which uh, although you can't actually go into as a member of the public, you can see from the outside and they're very distinctive. And he also designed the St. Leopold's Church, or what's called the Kirche am Steinhof, the Church of St. Leopold, which is at the Stein, which is a fabulous church at the Steinhof um, Psychiatric Hospital. And this is built between 1903 and 1907. And it's a really grand modern venture in designing a, a church. It's a bit designed a bit like on a Greek cross. And the whole thing is sumptuously decorated on the outside and on the interior. Some other artists and designers working on the stained glass in the interiors. Wagner, like some of the architects who followed him, was very much a believer in the Gesamtkunstwerk, the same idea that we have with opera and Wagner's opera of, of a, a totally designed interior. And so the Church of St. Leopold, um, and it's been spectacularly restored, is in sort of the outskirts of Vienna. That can be seen and visited. And his other really great famous interior is the Aust Austrian Post Savings Bank of 1904 to 1912. It was built. And that he designs absolutely everything um, down to pieces of furniture, as well as um, really innovative things for the heating systems that are both formally attractive and also are very functional. A great pioneer in the modern use of aluminium, for instance, in as opposed to decorative and functional material in the buildings. Uh, other architects who were working and the next generation onwards, his pupil and very much admired uh, architect Josef Hoffmann. There are some buildings by him, mostly apartment buildings or um, villas, but interiors of his, because they're more domestic, tend to survive in the uh, realm of the museum environment. So the Museum for Angewandte Kunst, or Mach Wien, as it's known, the Decorative Arts Museum in Vienna, has extensive holdings of Hoffmann's work. And the third architect of this group, again, a really interesting one, Adolf Loos, L-O-O-S, he has several buildings that survive off a quite small scale. He did some villas and apartment buildings, but the ones that survive are particularly interesting is Knitze, which is a sort of high-class conservative men's fashion outlet in Umgraben in the centre of town. Also the American Bar, 
which is this very small space that you can go into. I've been driven out by the fact that you can actually still smoke in Vienna, so I've never actually spent very long inside it, but it's this very smart, small bar that people love. And he also designed uh, what's the, called the Goldman and Salach building, which is opposite the Hofburg, the city palace, and that was built as a men's outfitter gentleman's outfitter and it's a very elegant modern building that was considered a complete uh, had a great deal of controversy at its time because it didn't conform to all the expectations of classical ornamentation that was expected especially in that part of the city would you consider otto wagner and hoffman and Luz uh, precursors to the bauhaus school in germany is, is there a similarity between their work the similarity Aesthetically, with Adolf Loos, perhaps the most, because of the flat, he does buildings with no ornamentation, flat sides and flat ceilings. So that kind of cubist-looking building that some of the Bauhaus buildings do have. I think the most, um, it's more the approach to design that is, is um, rather than the aesthetic appearance. It's the approach to design, the idea that the architect should be involved in all aspects of design. In the case of Loos, particularly, there's often a a socialist bent that we should actually improve urban environment. It's actually better for people to live in if they live in a nice urban environment. So they're more the ideas that come from laws, perhaps more than, although, and also the ideas that come from Otto Wagner, who also wrote a lot about his work and the idea of uh, his his ideas, I think, are very much absorbed perhaps by Bauhaus, um, if not the aesthetics. I understand there's works by Hoffman and Loss in Australian mm. collections, notably the National Gallery of Victoria. What are they and how have they come about? Yeah, these are very interesting. The uh, Josef Hoffman designed the interiors of, of an apartment for the Galia family, Hermina and Moritz Galia, in Vienna from about 1912. And it's a large mansion apartment and it's the whole caboodle, drawing room, hall, dining room, bedrooms, and really down to the teaspoons, you know, it's, it's the carpets, the furniture, the, the light fittings. And suitably, there was also a painting of Madame Gallia by Gustav Klimt, which, um, so it's a beautifully, totally designed interior. The Gallia family of Jewish origin left Vienna in 1938, along with a lot of other people, a lot of, especially a lot of other um, Jewish families, and they came to Australia via a circuitous route. Interestingly, they weren't allowed to take any money but they could take uh, household possessions. And then by 1938, their 1912 smart modernist interiors weren't considered of any value. Neither was the painting by Gustav Klimt that was considered degenerate. And so they packed up and shipped um, pretty the whole lot to Australia, to Sydney. And then in the 1970s, a lot of these furnishings were acquired by the National Gallery of Victoria. So really, until relatively recently, that is until the Neuer Galleries established in New York, Melbourne at the National Gallery of Victoria, really through this one apartment interior and other acquisitions, had the biggest holdings of um, Wiener Werkstätte, Hoffman's uh, design workshops of Hoffman material outside Vienna. And that includes um, drawing room furniture, bedroom furniture, dining room furniture, carpets, textiles, metalwork, glassware. It's really quite splendid. Similarly for Adolf Loos, who had designed a small apartment in 1903 for a family called Langer, who were in uh, Vienna, and that interiors of that apartment actually stayed in Vienna during the war, but the uh, Langer family came out to Australia and then after the war brought the furnishings back to Australia and, and they are mostly now also in the National Gallery of Victoria. 
It was a small apartment, but the contents there include a sideboard, dining room furniture, uh, bedroom furniture, and room dividers. And it is quite interesting because not only are these great Viennese designers uh, represented in, in Australia in a public collection and can be seen, Loos and Hoffman were bitter enemies, and Loos particularly disliked Hoffman's decorative interior and the idea that everything should be designed by one architect. He considered it kind of degenerate, a bit effeminate, unnecessary. And Loos was a great writer, uh, journalist, so he wrote spectacularly and critically about Hoffman all his life. And uh, he's one of his, one of Loos's uh, most famous uh, uh, titles for an article is "Ornament and Crime." You know, the idea that ornament is something that we should be avoiding unnecessary ornament is actually a criminal thing to do and he he, he was great at over, overstating his um, position but most particularly like English design solutions uh, he was anglophile he'd been to the states and he also believed that if something was nicely designed like a chair you don't need to design a new one you just get a copy made whereas Hoffman would uh, very much design the entire interior. So it's quite interesting to have these two, both pioneers of modern Viennese design, well represented in Australia by very key, interesting works. What happened to Hoffman and Luss? Did they stay in Vienna? Did they have long careers? Yeah, um, it's quite, this is interesting. Hoffman dies, I mean, he's born in 18, they're both born in 1870, 71. Hoffman dies in, in 1956, so long-lived. Loos dies in 33. Loos continues to work doing architectural work. He also does buildings. He's, he's actually from then Czechoslovakia, so he's born in Bruno. So there are buildings he does in Czech Republic. He does uh, apartment buildings also in Vienna. He's also involved in reconstruction after the first war, not so much reconstruction after Vienna, but public housing becomes a major issue in Vienna after the first war. And Adolf Loos ran the settlement office, which was the kind of public office for dealing with public housing. Not for very long, From he runs it from 21 to 24, but has a huge amount. Um, he, he essentially employs the people who then go on to do a lot of the building projects. And so there's this extraordinary flourishing of what we would call public housing, communal housing uh, that's built in Vienna from about 24 until 1934, like some 400 housing blocks. And so this is very much Loos's influence. Hoffmann himself also continues to work as an architect and after the war adapts perhaps a more modernist style that we would see as a more modernist style and continues um, designing buildings really towards the end of his life. So these public housing buildings are the ones that Loss did? He didn't design so design okay. much as he was involved. Supervised. Loss was involved in setting up the, I suppose, the structure that enabled other architects to work on the direction of planning and construction of the public housing. It's an amazing project. I mean, it's it's like some 400 housing blocks. It's like 60,000 units being built for 10 years. They were, of course, residential, but the exciting part from a planning point of view is they were really designed to have all the facilities people needed, like um, kindergartens, gardens, um, cinemas, stores, lots of green space. So this was all prescribed by the council. And some of them were quite small, I suppose, like apartment buildings with five or six people. The most famous, which is the biggest one, is called the Karl Marx Hof, and it was designed by Karl N., who's actually a student of Otto Wagner. 
And that was built at the end of the 20s, so between 27 and 30. And that has about 1,400 apartments. And the facade's over a metre, uh, sorry, over a kilometre long. So it's three or four metro stops on the trams. Extraordinary building. And it's something that that's externally been restored. A lot of the buildings have been restored and they've got this nice plaque saying that they're Gemeinde Bauten or they're supported by the Gemeinde of, of Vienna, which is the municipality of Vienna. So it's a very you know, important part of, of a modern Viennese design. What is interesting about them too is that they haven't been converted into smart condominiums, but they're actually available as still rent-controlled public housing today, even though they're now in much more desirable parts of Vienna than they were when they were built between the walls. These are the projects that have got that nickname of Red Vienna, is that right? Yes, that's correct, yeah. Because the after the war, the politics, in, not in Austria, but in Vienna, went very left-wing. Uh, as happened in parts of Germany, so particularly Weimar, where the Bauhaus is established. And so that for that sort of 10-year period, this extraordinary amount of um, public infrastructure could be developed. Interesting with the population in Vienna, although it's just over 2 million before the First War, it's still only about 2 million. So it has this astonishing infrastructure that was designed for a much bigger city that still um, works today. I mean, for instance, the water is piped from some about 100 kilometres away from the mountains, which is a project done in 1873 to give the city fresh water, and it's still, it's still using the same 19th century infrastructure. So, Chris, tell us about the succession building. The Secession in Vienna is an important art institution. It's still running today. It was founded in 1897, and essentially it was a breakaway movement a bit stronger, a breakaway group from the traditional imperial art school, which was very conservative. It's founded by the artist Gustav Klimt, designer Coleman Moser, Josef Hoffmann's involved in it, and Josef Maria Olberich, who's the architect of a building that's built in 1898. Otto Wagner also joined. So it's hardly not really a radical group, but it's a group of artists and designers who wanted to move away from the state-funded art school. They very much believe that there should be an exchange of ideas with artists outside Austria as well, and that there should be a break away from the hierarchy of painting, sculptures, decorative arts, in that all the arts should be regarded equally and of equal importance. And so there's very much the idea of a total work of art or um, and a unification of painting, architecture and decorative arts. And so it was essentially a opposing the domination of the official Vienna Academy. This building has had multiple exhibitions. The buildings have survived. Well, a replica of the building survives. It was completely demolished during the Second War. More and less completely demolished and was rebuilt. This building has uh, continued to have contemporary art exhibitions. And so it's very much the, I suppose, practical manifestation, practical working tradition of the outcomes of progressive architecture and design in Vienna of around 1900. Christopher, thank you so very much for giving us an insight into a side of Vienna that not many people probably are aware of or know, and certainly anyone visiting the city be more interested, not just the Habsburg Imperial Historical Centre, but also this other modernist area, which is fascinating. Thank you, Stuart, and it's great to be able to talk to you about it. Thank you for joining us at The Thinking Traveller, brought to you by Academy Travel a leader in small group cultural tours. Visit our website at academytravel.com.au to access blog articles or join our online program of lectures and short courses brought to you by experts around the world.